From Bristol, UK, I'm Pomi Harmer. I'm Melissa Shamam, and this is The Quarantini. We've been bringing you this podcast every week since April to keep your spirits up. And we want to carry on doing so while we're still living with COVID. But we're going to slightly change the rhythm. We're going to find more fabulous guests. We'll discuss how we should or could improve our world through and after this crisis. So every episode will bring you, as usual, a mix of ingenious responses to the virus, creative ideas for the future, an in-depth interview, and maybe a dash of the unexpected. Hello and welcome back. And first of all, thank you very much to Seb Gutierrez and his band, The Old Bones Collective, for that music, Hot Flu. Or opening theme. Coming up in the show, we've got some music from Katie J. Pearson. But first of all, we're going to start with our interview. Yes, this week for episode 22, we thought we'd bring you a special guest from the other side of the planet. So we have for you Celia Wade Brown, and she's the former mayor of Wellington in New Zealand. Celia was born in England. She first worked in Ghana at the beginning of her career, and then she moved to New Zealand as an IT engineer first. There, she joined the Green Party and she became a councillor in Wellington City Council in 1994. And she was a councillor until she became the mayor of the capital of New Zealand in 2010. And she was re-elected in 2013. Now she's running in another smaller city. And I've called her back there in New Zealand a few days ago. And we first talked about how New Zealand dealt so well with the COVID-19 crisis, according to her. And then we talked about the links with the climate emergency and the general threats on the environment and what her party wants to do about it. With relationship to our handling of the pandemic, I think it goes to a trust in government. And that's not universal. There are a few little protests here and there. But we're very close to people in New Zealand. If you walk down the streets of our capital, Wellington, you will probably see a minister from whichever party's in power. I remember seeing the National Minister Stephen Joyce jogging along the waterfront. And then we saw MP Julianne Genta, who's Minister of Women's Affairs, Green MP. She parked her bike and went for a swim. And they don't have bodyguards with them. So you see them every day. And whether you agree with their policies or not, I think there's a general recognition that they are the same as everybody else. And we have a reasonably high representation of women in Parliament. And every party has got Maori leadership as well. So we have the Maori party competing for seats. And the Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters, is Maori. So I think when you can see yourself reflected in Parliament, then you're more likely to trust what happens. And Jacinda Ardern is a fantastic communicator as well. The COVID-19 response is incredibly important for people's health and also how the country does afterwards. But its consequences are not nearly as bad as climate change. So I would love to see that leadership from Jacinda applied to climate change initiatives. I mean, she said fairly soon after being elected that climate change was, you know, the generational moment, like the nuclear free. So New Zealand's nuclear free as well, in terms of both weapons and power. I'm not seeing a huge amount of leadership from the Labour Party on climate change. They're not deniers. In fact, no party in government is a denier of global heating. 
But the Greens have got better plans for a clean energy future. We've just put forward our aims for a totally renewable energy. We're blessed with geothermal and wind and solar here. And a little bit, and there's not enough investment, in my view, in tidal energy. So there are a lot of good things. Um, because we're a 5 million population living in a country about the same size as the UK, 30% of our land is conservation land, which is a very big proportion. But that does disguise a few problems. We do have a lot of cows and some farmers are fantastic. They've planted along the rivers and so on. Some are not so good and there's been nutrient runoff. So our rivers are actually some of the worst in the world, not being swimmable. But again, there's a lot of good initiatives. One that I was very interested in to see is that now farmers are measuring the amount of nitrous oxide, the amount of methane and the amount of carbon dioxide that are being emitted from their farms and measuring is always the first step towards change. We're seeing some advances. It's quite interesting because I'm standing in a fairly rural electorate now and I've learned a lot about forestry and about farming. On our own land, we've actually owned the land for 30 years and we've shut stock off and regenerated the forest. So we're now earning carbon credit from about a third of the land and then there's a fair bit that is original bush as well. You know, people can't get rid of their existing equipment, their existing vehicles overnight. And if offsetting helps absorb the carbon in the meantime, that's a good thing. But going back to when I was mayor, 14 years before I was mayor, I was a councillor. So I've been involved even though some of the initiatives began under the previous mayor. We've had a climate change plan since probably the late 2000s. And then I pushed it a fair bit harder. And one of the things was that we had some grant for startups and there's three that I'd like to give you the example that we helped three businesses that are doing a really good job one's quite a small scale it was an e-bike hire company on the waterfront and um, they're still going switched on bike then on a slightly bigger scale we supported an electric car share company Mevo the whole idea is that you know if you're living in a fairly compact city like Wellington most of the time you don't need a car but there are occasions where you're going somewhere that's too complex a journey on public transport were too far to walk or bike um, or you're collecting something so you need a car occasionally and why not have an electric car so that's been fantastic for people and councils prioritized some parking for shared vehicles and the third example which I think is fantastic because it's gone global is a company that's now called Kogo it started off as conscious consumers and the idea is that all of us contribute to global warming and or other issues by what we buy and and if you can track what you're buying, whether your concern is primarily animal welfare, which is another green issue, or people being paid a living wage, which is a big thing in New Zealand now, following on from the UK, or whether you're interested in reducing your emissions, you can actually track where you're sending your money and what the effect is. And this company is now set up in the UK as well. And Kogo's partnered with NatWest, one of the big banks, so that people can actually see what difference they're making. And it also incentivizes businesses to improve their practices because they can see that it actually attracts consumers if they're doing the right thing. I mean, there's lots of other things one can do, of course, in one's personal life, buying secondhand clothes instead of buying new all the time or making sure you don't waste any food. And of course, our transport choices are big. Yeah, so that was the first part of the interview. And I think for me, it's quite magical and interesting and fascinating to see how both on a local level and national level New Zealand indeed managed to tackle 
two of the greatest crises we face now are so much better than the rest of the world, right? The COVID crisis and also the climate emergency. What do you think? They're a small country, aren't they? Which, you know, they, it's difficult to compare them to somewhere like the UK. Their politicians, I was interested in hearing their politicians are much more accessible because they're so small, they see them walking about. Yeah, she kept saying that they have this huge trust in government, both local mayors or the prime minister, because they have this relationship where they can't act so far away. So I guess trust was an issue that we, we can't say we have that here in the UK. But there's also many, many other political differences, like, for instance, you know, the way the system is written down. Well, we have a very adversarial system, don't we? We have two two party system. I know there are other parties, but generally it's Labour Tory, and they've got proportional representation. So th that means they have to work together more. And I, I'd like to see that here, but I can't see either of the main parties ever ever allowing it. Yes, I think it's it's probably going to become a key question everywhere because if we can have more discussion and compromises, it would be, be easier for everyone to tackle such level of crisis. Again, having a very one-sided government was a disaster for COVID, wasn't it? Because all the measures that, for instance, the NHS demanded and then on the other side, people campaigning for not giving up on climate change because all the research shows that climate change is one of the main factors that explain why we have such spread of uh, respiratory disease, right? It's the way we deal with the wild world and the forest and the animals that should be living on their own. So maybe that, that will come up again in the debate worldwide. But then I also wanted to discuss with Celia um, all the changes that they implement. They sound fantastic to me, but I feel like here in the UK or in France when I was living, or even when I was living in Africa, I thought that people were sometimes afraid of change. And government like the one we have, they would tell people, you change first. You change your habits and consumption, your jobs, the way you use transport. And what reflected from our discussion is that in New Zealand, they really held people to foster change. So that's what we're going to discuss next. I think... Yes, we get blamed for not changing ourselves, but actually, you know, all we need is a few incentives. If somebody gave me an incentive to change my boiler, I'd change my boiler I and mean, I'd have an electric boiler. But it isn't as simple as that anyway, is it? Because the whole infrastructure needs to change. I remember my son saying, you know, you worry about the packaging you bring home. You should see the amount of plastic that things arrive in at the supermarket. It puts what you take home in. It's absolutely tiny. So we need to think beyond what individuals can do and, and think what needs to change in terms of policy, I think. So this is what Celia had to say about that. I think you're absolutely right. It is challenging for people. And people tend to be very black and white about some things. So, you know, if you promoting having a cycle lane in a suburb, people will say, well, my grandmother can't go to a hospital with a broken leg on a bicycle. And of course, nobody's saying that they should. So I think the messaging has to be very subtle, really, that this is another option. This is an attractive choice. 
and you can also try to make it a little bit more difficult and less convenient to drive. I think one of the most interesting things is looking at Amsterdam, looking at the history of Amsterdam. It wasn't that people were born with a bicycle pump. They made it less direct to get from A to B by car than by bike. And that was transformative. And all of those urban planning things, if it's really close to walk to school or to walk to the shops, and it's a bit of a faff to go and get your car out of the garage at the back of the house, then people will change. You've got to make it easy for people. It's not got to be this sort of huge eco-sacrifice because that will get, if you're lucky, 10% of the people. And we're interested in more like 80% of the people doing the right thing. So yeah, making it attractive. I think role models have a big um, part to play and women in particular have a big part to play if women feel it's safe to walk home from the bus after dark or they feel it's safe to go shopping on foot or by bike then it's generally safe for everybody totally because we've all around the world experienced lockdown and decreasing activity industrial activities transport i think it's reported everywhere that most people have appreciated that the calmness and no airplanes in the sky so we have a momentum to push forward certain ideas because I think once you have that experience with connecting to nature I don't know anybody who would not say that it was a wonderful way of living and with global warming it's obvious that green spaces in cities are one of the easiest solution right so you're running a campaign now what lesson do you think we can apply quickly from this lockdown and what are your bigger plan for maybe the coming years I think access to nature is something that was not experienced evenly by people. I mean, there are a number of cities where there are lovely parks in the rich areas and not very much in the poorer suburbs. I mean, Wellington is very fortunate. We have a town belt that is accessible to almost everybody. You have to think in the urban planning that if we're going to have more people living in a city, then make that a little bit more dense in places, but leave space for nature. And it's good for nature and it's good for people. The benefits for mental health as well as physical health are huge. I'm a member of the Biophilic Cities Network Advisory Group, and it's fantastic to see Edmonton, Singapore, Birmingham, Wellington. Now, these are some of the cities where you have wildlife integrated in the city. It's not that you have to take a train to a reserve somewhere else. So interestingly, it can save money for a council not to be mowing every week not to have all of these flower beds that it's the same flowers all around the world and there's nothing for the local wildlife. And it makes it distinctive. I mean, New Zealand's flora and fauna, a lot of it is found nowhere else. And again, you know, it would be good to see a lot more local plants rather than it's always rhododendrons, camellias, roses. I mean, they're beautiful plants, but when you go to the gardens and they all look the same, it's a bit sad. So in terms of the New Zealand Green Party's propositions, we have three really strong platforms for the election. One is taking climate action. And while we've got the zero carbon bill, we need to move further and faster. We need to invest more in rail. And we have got some advances already in urban planning. There's some changes to urban planning that will allow a little bit more density. 
So that's the climate change action. The second one is tackling inequality. And this is where I think green parties around the world generally have a very strong care for people as well as the planet. And that example of the being better part near richer people is just not fair. And if you're worrying about whether you can feed the children, then you're not going to be thinking about necessarily where the food came from. So tackling food poverty, as well as tackling food waste, making sure that people have enough income, that they can live a dignified life, that parents aren't working two or three really low paid jobs. So the second plank of our election campaign is tackling inequality. And if you don't look at people's incomes, if you don't look at their ability to live a dignified life, if you don't help families with children to be able to care for those children, to feed them, to make sure they have good education, to make sure they've got shoes so they can get to school, then the next generation is just going to repeat the mistakes of previous generations. There's a very big move here to enviro schools so that schools are becoming hubs for ecological and connected thinking. And that's everything from growing food in gardens. For children to be able to grow salad and then eat the salad at lunchtime or make a soup or things like that, it teaches them a lot. And if you're in a rental house, it's quite difficult to have a garden if you don't have security of tenure and so So tackling inequality in a whole range of ways, whether it's gender equality or whether it's income equality, is pretty important to the Greens. And the third pillar is protecting nature and not seeing it as something other, but protecting it because we're all part of the same world. The Maori philosophy in New Zealand is reasonably strong. I mean, we have the Te Tiriti, the Treaty of Waitangi that was signed in 1840. I think it's the first colonised country that actually managed to have a treaty. And it's not been perfect. There's been land stolen, there's been language lost, there's been all sorts of problems. But Maori leadership's really strong here. And they talk very much about being part of the land. And one of our rivers has got the status of personhood. People talk about the life force in the land. And there's a lovely saying, which means people come and go, but the land remains. And Maori people, when they came to New Zealand, made mistakes too. But they learned from that and they have a strong philosophy of guardianship, kaitiakitanga. And again, the Greens are a party that put that treaty at the heart of our philosophy. That sounds wonderful. It's amazing because it sounds very optimistic in a time where we have um, terrible news regarding the situation of the planet. Just the amount of ice melted from the poles and Greenland's uh, has been announced as you know drastic. And of course, with the current political climate, it's really hard to to move on. So you can definitely say that some places have set an example of what is still possible to do. Are you an optimist on that matter? I think there is some very bad news around the world. Um, And I think that just means that we have to act with some urgency, whether it's on transport or um, protecting marine reserves or on some technological answers as well. I just saw the film 2040 with a group of people. And the message of that film for me was very much that the solutions are there. They're just not being used rapidly enough or widely enough. The ocean acidification, but the idea that we are killing the things in the sea because the ocean is absorbing the carbon dioxide and acidifying is terrifying. I mean, from a point of view of 
the aesthetics of what you can see if you dive on coral or from the point of view of actually being able to feed the world. But what I saw in that film was so exciting. It was about marine permaculture. And it was about actually putting out some basically kelp beds and seaweed beds and so on and how quickly it cleans up the ocean. It provides food and it's beautiful as well. And if we could just stop subsidising the bad things and use that money for a green COVID recovery, that would be great. In New Zealand, we've said no to any future oil exploration, which is a huge step forward. But the people that are working in the oil industries, they deserve a just transition. We've got to find ways, whether it's setting up solar power on houses or whether it's the green jobs that have been taking on people from hospitality and tourism who don't have as much employment with the COVID crisis. There are plenty of ways of helping people to have a good livelihood in a cleaner, greener world. Thank you so much, Celia. It feels really heartwarming to hear so many options and responses and, you know, proactivity in politics to, to make those changes happen. So we'll keep an eye on the news in New Zealand to see how, how it happens for you in the election. All the best. Thank you. We're looking for the party vote. And um, I do hope that other countries move towards having good democracy with proportional representation. Kakite which means see you again. Au revoir. Kakite. I really enjoyed listening to her. She's so positive, full of ideas and action. And it felt like things were possible. But I think we get weighed down in negativity in this country sometimes. I must say that was a really uplifting moment for me. Talking to such a politician, I thought, oh, there's so much possible. Let's be hopeful because it's just a matter of changing how we implement things. And this this idea of trust and this idea of a better representation, it means, you know, politics is not completely dead. There's another way to practice it. And, and having proportional representation, it seems to me they're bringing everyone along with them. So they've got Maori... Um, leadership they've got women in the leadership that people aren't getting left behind and therefore they don't feel left out and, and unthought about yes obviously there's a there's a reason why proportional representation was kind of like on the way out uh, around world war Two in the in places like france and the u.s it's just because they could never form a government right all the governments ended up falling That's what they have in Israel at the moment. But there's a middle way between an extreme ungovernable parliament and a two-party system. There's a, lot, there's a lot of room in the middle for something that's a bit more functional. But in a realistic situation, we just hope that we, we can have at least local leadership that will learn from these two crises and learn from all these examples that are out there. You know, everybody should look at New Zealand, obviously, right? Absolutely. Look at New Zealand. Great. It's now time for our weekly roundup of positive news. So starting in Bristol, more than 40 balloon flights have been given to key workers in Bristol. Local balloon pilots organised an event quite recently to say thank you to the key workers and carers for their work during the pandemic. Apparently, balloon flights, did you know this, Melissa? They're on many people's bucket lists. And so any unsung heroes from Bristol and across the southwest could be nominated for the trip. So as well as NHS staff, these included postal workers, shopkeepers, uh, refuse collectors, and much of Bristol waking up last weekend saw the balloons flying overhead. And staying in Bristol and following on from last week's theme of mental health, we wanted to bring you news of a new sculpture which has appeared overnight 
in the city. It's of a young man with his hood up, holding his head in his hands, and there's a teddy bear beside him, holding his arm. And it's there to highlight mental health issues and that there's help if we need it. The two figures are sitting in a little nook above a very busy road in Bristol. And this is what interests me. The identity of the sculptor remains unknown. It's not a Banksy, obviously, because it's sculpture. But it's a mystery, Melissa. There's a, there's a clue in that this one looks like others that have also appeared, including the angels in the bear pit. Meanwhile, Pommy, the Confederation of British Industry is urging the government to invest in green technology and green jobs. I mean, who would see that coming? It's Britain's... Really <laughs> exactly. It's Britain's leading business group and it has called on the government to create green jobs to help recover the economy from the coronavirus pandemic specifically. So ask the Confederation's first virtual net zero conference took place mid-September. The director said the UK must become a global leader in climate action to create new green jobs and lift productivity post-pandemic. Net zero means uh, achieving net zero carbon dioxide emissions by offsetting or using alternatives to eliminate carbon emissions altogether. And last year, Britain set a target to reach net zero emissions by 2050. But progress has been hindered by the pandemic and the struggling economy. So that was the bad news. But the Confederation said for so many, this feels like a time of fearlessly competing goals and the world faces two seemingly separate yet fundamental problems, COVID-19, the biggest health crisis in living memory and climate change, the defining challenge of the modern era. I think that's such a progress. If the industry is just calling us, then there's no limit. That's real progress, isn't it? And we also want to highlight an organisation called Hidden Disabilities. These are the ones that don't have physical signs and include things like learning difficulties, uh, mental health, as well as mobility, speech, visual or hearing impairments. They can also include asthma, lung conditions, diabetes, and they significantly impact day-to-day life. Living with these conditions can make daily life more demanding for many people and are particularly difficult during this mask-wearing phase of COVID, where communication is made even more troublesome. Sympathy and understanding can often be in short supply. So this company, which started off thinking about hidden disabilities at Gatwick Airport, uses the image of the sunflower to draw attention to hidden disabilities. And you can find badges, posters, stickers, face masks and hand sanitizer, and many other things with the image on. You can buy them and give them to your family and friends and also be aware of what the sunflower means if you see it on somebody else. That's great, isn't it? Yeah, let's remember the sunflower. That's more relevant than ever before, right? Now, more good news, Pummy. You know what? Bristol Hospital has now gone about a month without a single coronavirus patient. But... Really? I'm talking about Bristol, Connecticut in the USA. You probably probably know there are dozens of Bristol over there in America. But I thought it was nice news. According to a local newspaper there, the BristolPress.com, the hospital uh, has reported having no patients with the virus or any under investigation for potential having COVID-19. And the last time that hospital over there in Bristol reporting having a patient with the virus was mid-August when a patient was successfully discharged. 
And in the whole country, obviously, the situation is very different. But that city in Connecticut bring us some, some good news from America. That's great. And back to this country, puppies. I put this one especially in for you, Melissa. Puppies and DIY product sales have soared compared to other sales. Puppies in particular, well, you can imagine why puppies have soared. People want to go out. They want something to look after. Uh, Obviously, puppies are for life, not just for COVID. I think I've seen that sticker already on somebody's, in the back of somebody's car. Um, And also you can see why DIY products would be so successful. People have had a lot of time to be at home, haven't they, and think about how they want to make their homes nicer, particularly if they're going to have to work from them. That's great news. I think every time someone is buying a useless product on Amazon, they should have a button and, you know, a pop-up screen saying, are you sure you want this or do you want to buy a DIY product from your local <laughs> independent shop? <laughs> then maybe we can make progress. You know, they should definitely have a button saying, do you really want this? <laughs> <laughs> do you really need this? Are you going to make a use of this in six months? <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's now time for a dash of something exciting. What have you got for us, Melissa? Right, Pommy. It's a West Country girl in a West Country world. That's how she describes herself. After almost 10 years of touring and writing, and she says wonderful times, she has now announced the coming release of her debut album. It's called Return, and it's scheduled for November via Heavenly Recordings. Her name is Katty J. Pearson, and the song that we're going to play now is called Fix Me Up. Oh uh-huh. 
Katie J. Pearson with Fix Me Up and thank you so much to Funnel Music for the discovery. That's it for the quarantine this week. We'll be back soon with a new cocktail of ideas, music and positive news for you all. This episode was hosted by me, Melissa Shamam, and was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. Thank you for listening. And stay safe. <laughs>